This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. When Reformed and Presbyterian Christians think of Paul, we might think first of Paul as the New Testament theologian of grace, of salvation, of unconditional election. But he might just as easily be called the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Where we might focus on Romans 9, and in the chapter just before, Romans 8, Paul mentions the person and work of the Holy Spirit no fewer than 20 times. In Romans 8, 1 through 5, Paul writes, There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Just as soon as he proclaims the gospel, he begins talking to us about our new life in Christ in the Spirit. Joel Kim is Associate Professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California, and he teaches our course on the Pauline Epistles, and he joins us to help us understand Paul's theology of the Holy Spirit. He's a teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church in America and co-editor of Always Reformed, Essays in Honor of W. Robert Godfrey. This, with other faculty titles, is available through... The Bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Joel, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks for having me, Scott. I'm glad you're here. Now, tell us about Saul of Tarsus. Tell us about the Apostle Paul. Who was he, and how did Saul of Tarsus become the Apostle Paul? As I'm sure many are aware, Paul of Tarsus was formally called Saul, not necessarily a previous name and a post name, but simply he had multiple names coming from different backgrounds, coming from the background of someone who was a Jew, who was raised as a Pharisee and trained as a Pharisee, someone who is trained in the language that's Greek, as well as a Hellenized culture, having been born in Tarsus and sometime raised in Tarsus. Where is Tarsus? Tarsus is in present day Turkey area, but in the area of Cilicia in the first century, where he, as part of the diaspora Jews, grew up in a culture where, while maintaining their cultural background, they were drinking in both the language and culture of the people around them. And it was a heavily philosophized city among Greeks with Greek training, which explains why he wrote the New Testament letters in Greek as well, while at the same time also a Roman Empire with the citizenship that comes from Rome as well. So Saul is a Jew Mm -hmm. and raised among Jews, trained as a rabbi. Mm -hmm. And he gives us a brief sketch of his biography in Philippians 3. And yet he does so in the midst of a Greek culture. That's right. That's right. I mean, many, many of us understand what it means to be in a bit of a melting pot with different cultures and languages at work right around us. And he had that experience as well, having grown up as a Jew in a Greek city, bilingual background and cultural mixture is something that he saw very commonly in the first century. But I think the question that you're asking was, how then does he become from a Jewish person to a Christian 
person. And yet he continued to be a Jew. Yeah, and, and no doubt. I mean, I think that's part of the point where he mentions multiple times his Jewishness, uh, not only in Philippians 3, but also just to simply point out his connectedness, both linguistically and culturally, to the Jewish people. We saw that later on. That was also helpful to him as he was using the mother tongue, was able to communicate the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah to many who are his kin. We also recognize that his background, obviously, allowed him access into various places, going to synagogues and other places that would not have been possible for him if he were not a Jew. What did it mean to be raised a Jew? Most of us listening are Gentiles. You and I are Gentiles. So give us a sense of what it means for Saul of Tarsus to be raised in a Jewish environment and particularly to be raised and trained as a rabbi. Here is Paul, who, despite the fact that he was living outside of Jerusalem, he talks about his credentials in Philippians 3 this way, where he says he's an eight-dayer when it comes to circumcision. That is to say, although he himself had no authority or power as an eight-day-old baby to bring himself into a place where he circumcised, his parents were law-observant people. Despite living outside of Jerusalem, away from the temple, they kept the law is the point. He talks about the fact that he is an Israelite, meaning that he's not a proselyte, not someone who converted into Judaism. Keeping of the law was a very important part of his upbringing as well as his life. He talks about the fact that he's a Benjamite, probably the second most mentioned of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's an important person with important connections family-wise to the Jews, where being Jewish was very significant. In terms of his training, he was a Pharisee. There is a record in saying that the memorization of the Pentateuch or the Torah was a common basic practice of those who are training. And he said not only was he being trained this way, he was far ahead of others, according to Galatians, in terms of his peers, in terms of his training, which meant that not only did he memorize it, he understood it. He understood the traditions of the fathers is what he mentions it. And keeping of the law became a central point for who he was. So convicted was he of his father's faith that he became a persecutor of those who followed Jesus, convinced that they were wrong in declaring Jesus to be Messiah. Messiah. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? As a Jew growing up in the time, you're drinking in the culture of the time in terms of what the Jewish expectations were of the coming Messiah. Not everyone perhaps uniformly believed what the expectations were, but he thought that the person who would come would come in the line of David with the power displayed by the king to overthrow the oppressing government, in this case, the Roman Empire, to take over and exalt. Again, this oppressed nation called Israel was the expectation. I mean, even the disciples felt the same way that John the Baptist later on, even while believing that Jesus was the Messiah, sitting in prison, having his own doubts, sends his own disciples to say, hey, are you the one who was supposed to come or should we wait for another? Is the kind of expectation they had for the kind of Messiah that they're hoping and praying for. And yet he underwent a dramatic, a radical a significant transformation, and it happened relatively suddenly. What happened to this Orthodox Jew? In today's world, we might call him Hasidic, right? Memorizing the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, trained in the rabbinical reception of and understanding of the Torah, and yet he became a Christian. How did that happen? 
You know, the word conversion has a lot of uh, baggages associated with it, and some people are uncomfortable, nor is the scripture making this prescriptive that everyone has to go through these kind of dramatic experiences where they come to know Jesus. But here, what we do see recorded three times in Acts, it's repeated for us multiple times. You know, I understand that those who are dealing with literature, a lot of people talk about the master story, the story that kind of defines and explains who you are and why you are the way you are. Apart from knowing Christ, for someone like me, the master story involves our family's immigration when I was 10. A lot of things can be explained going back to that notion. It's almost as if for Paul, everything can be explained from his conversion experience, what we call the Damascus Road experience. Here he was a young leader in Judaism. He was leading a pack of people to persecute the Christians, in particular in the city and the town of Damascus. So in Syria... And with letters, with authority, there was not just a rogue fellow, but actually engaged in the systematic, authorized persecution and prosecution and quite probably even the martyrdom of Christians, right? Judging from the martyrdom narrative of Stephen. Certainly from Syria, but not necessarily in Syria at that point, right? And as he's marching toward Damascus... He's confronted with a frightening light. I mean, that blinds him. And here he meets the risen Lord. That is to say, Jesus appears to him and basically asks him, why do you persecute me? And not only does he confront Saul, soon to be referred primarily as Paul, Having been blinded, he is now led to a person named Ananias with whom he stays for a few days. And then his scales come off from his eyes. Scripture likes to speak of the blindness of faith, oftentimes with blindness physically. And here, when the scales came off, he then is energized and exercised for the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And he actually marches into Damascus, no longer to persecute the church there, but to persuade them that Jesus is indeed Lord and Messiah. A lot of people wonder whether that experience on Damascus can be attributed as a conversion experience, that is, a switch from his Judaism to now Christianity in some ways. Well, it's hard to explain otherwise. Certainly, he was called into a particular ministry that in that appearance of Jesus, he calls Saul, now Paul, to be the minister to the Gentiles. That's for certain true. But it not only involves that, it changes his person and perspective. I mean, he talks about how, going back to Philippians again, all these things he once considered important and once treasured, he considers rubbish, unimportant to him. Now, all that drives him, his desire to know Christ and to be found in him, right? And all his contemporaries thought that he was now a danger to Judaism, turning against him despite his background and his upbringing. What other word can we use to explain what happened except to say he converted? You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Certainly Ananias had to be persuaded that Paul had been, or Saul of Tarsus, had been converted because Ananias' first reaction when the Lord comes to him is to say, excuse me, you want me to talk to whom? You want me to deal with whom? Don't you remember who this guy is? He's arresting people. He's putting our people to death. So Ananias sees a sharp contrast. He knows what Paul was. 
And what he doesn't yet quite appreciate is what Paul is now. The book of Acts records succession of events like that, right? Ananias being one, Damascus, and the folks there being convinced that this guy who was coming for them should be now trusted. Later on, the pillars of faith in Jerusalem had to be convinced by Barnabas that the change in Paul was genuine. And Barnabas stood as, quote unquote, kingmaker for Paul, as he's the one who explains to many of the leaders of Jerusalem that he's not what he once was and that he now has undergone a wholesale change with conviction and belief in Jesus Christ as his Lord. And quickly, in just a couple of minutes, if you can, survey the course of his ministry. For example, for how many years did Paul minister as a Christian? You know, a lot of people think that once you become a Christian, you stay silent for a while and then you learn the ways and then you engage in ministry after you go through discipleship one, two and three and so on. That's not the experience that Paul went through. Having met the risen Lord on the Damascus road, he went into Damascus and according to Luke, what he did was to try to persuade everyone that this Jesus whom he tried to persecute was now the Lord and Messiah. Which is a very interesting expression, by the way. Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you killing Christians? Why are you persecuting me? So it's interesting. And the Apostle Paul even reflects on this maybe indirectly later on in Colossians when he says, they not being able to get at Jesus come after us, which is what he had been doing. Paul loves to refer to the church as the body of Jesus, right? And in fact, later on, it talks about And Paul equates his own suffering and the participation in the suffering as the continuation of the kind of suffering that Jesus himself experienced in Colossians in particular, as you refer. So all that to say, yeah, I mean, this persecutor now is going and proclaiming the gospel message to those who are despisers as well as questioned individuals. He goes on into areas of Arabia, et cetera, for three or four years. A lot of people wonder, what did he do there? Was it a self-reflection time? It doesn't seem like so, because later on, when he returns, one of the kings of that area is chasing after him. And one wonders what might have happened, except to say that most likely he there as well was proclaiming the gospel, goes back into the area of Syria and Cilicia, where he's from, and continues that ministry after meeting the leaders in Jerusalem. Later on, when he records his trials and persecutions, there are a number of things there, especially in terms of the whipping, that's not recorded in the book of Acts. And one wonders, whether during these years, often referred to as the silent years, unknown years of Paul were spent proclaiming. The reason we know that he was active was because later on when Barnabas goes to the church in Antioch and he sees the ministry of the Lord there among the Gentiles there, he needed help. To use a modern language, he needed an associate or assistant pastor. What does he do? He goes and looks for, right? Looks for Paul in the Tarsus or Cilicia region. It's not like he had fax machines. Uh, It's not like he had, what, emails or phone calls? No, he actually had to look for him, went there, brought him back to Antioch, and there they ministered together where they experienced the growth of the church through the workings of the Spirit. It's also there that in chapter 13 of Acts, both Barnabas and Paul get called by the church to go beyond Antioch. And it begins what many people refer to as now the missionary journeys of Paul. Initially with Barnabas, they make their rounds, second time, third time. And here it begins that focal point of Luke's attention and acts where there is a Gentile expansion taking place to the ends of the earth. 
And for how many years did he do this? You know, a lot of approximations in terms of age. I think the best we can say, especially the word elder in Philemon, a lot of people assume that that's about the age of 60. And if Paul's death presumably occurred during the reign of Nero in the mid-60s, we're looking at around a near contemporary of Jesus when it comes to age. If that's the case, after his conversion or Damascus experience in his probably early 30s and his journeys in various places, his ministry with Barnabas begins sometimes in his 40s. 40s. Early to mid-40s is what you're looking at. And if the end date of mid-60s is right, he engages in very fruitful 15 to 20 years of ministry from that point on. And we know he was imprisoned once, probably released, and then most likely arrested and ultimately martyred, according to church tradition, on the Appian Highway outside of Rome. Yeah, he was probably arrested in prison multiple times. Toward the end of Book of Acts, he is in house imprisonment, and that's where the book ends. I mean, that's the kind of suspense we have at the end of Book of Acts. One wonders what happened afterwards. The way that Eusebius and others have recorded the end life of Paul was to conclude that he was probably released. At that time, you needed witnesses to be present in order for charges to stick. And he was in Rome, after all. And there is a question mark as to whether the political tumult in Jerusalem allowed many of the leaders to actually go and bring charges against Paul. So if that's the case, most likely he was released. And even at the end of Book of Acts, he was daily proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, Luke says. Having been released, he probably did visit Crete and others where we explain the existence of the pastoral letters. You see the First Timothy, Titus, and Second Timothy written about this time. And according to the church tradition, he was rearrested. And by Second Timothy, you can see that the six circumstances were quite a bit different than First Timothy. Nobody was able to come and see him. And even more so, he almost seems to say nobody wanted to come and see him. So dire the circumstances were. He also seemed to have known that he is nearing death as he talks about having run the good race and his life being poured out at that point. And most people assume that he was executed during the mid-60s after his second Roman imprisonment. As central as his encounter with the risen Christ was, which apparently, judging from Acts, objectively happened. In other words, it wasn't just some psychotic episode that Paul had, but there were others who were aware that something significant had actually objectively happened. As important as all that was to Paul, he is as much a theologian of the Holy Spirit, and if not more so than he is a theologian of the encounter with the risen Christ. How important is the Holy Spirit to his theology? Well, that's a tough question. It's hard to, my guess is, for us to necessarily say that one takes precedence over another. He's not a systematic theologian in the modern sense. However, he is a systemic thinker, and he's thinking in foundational categories where he, on the other side of the cross, is able to explain the whole of God's redemptive activity as person who looks beyond the grave, or at least the grave of Christ. And what's intriguing about him is as he deals with the results and the consequence of death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the whole period, a period that is now eschatological in nature. That is, from Paul's perspective, what happened with Jesus Christ and the resurrection, it brought the end to the front. 
He saw the risen Lord. That would have been impossible for him to imagine as someone who was anticipating the end to be exhaustive and that it's consummating and that there is a discontinuity between the age that we currently are in and the age to come, the day of the Lord that was predicted. He never thought that he would see the resurrection of the Lord and still not be in that final consummating day. And so here he is recognizing now as an expert in the Old Testament, he goes through all these reframing of what he understood to be true. And he understands his time post-Christ to be the final day. What wasn't anticipated by the Old Testament saints and many of his contemporaries was that the new age that came with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ came pregnant with another age. That is to say that this is the final age that we have entered as it inaugurates. But the final consummating day is still to come. But the age that we have entered is an age governed by and overseen by the Spirit. And it becomes the age of the Spirit, if you want to call it that. That sounds almost new ages. I don't mean it to be that way. But the Holy Spirit becomes central to our understanding of the presence of God's final age. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888 480 8474 Westminster Seminary, California for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. So when you say age of the Spirit, you're speaking in Pauline terms, not in contemporary religious discourse or in some broader framework. You're using it in a very specific sense. Paul says in Romans 1, starting at verse 3, concerning his son, now this sort of reinforces your point about how he correlates Christ and the Spirit, concerning his son, who is descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit, probably the Holy Spirit, of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So there, it's an interesting sort of base point to look at where he correlates the power of the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead and who has laid hold of Paul and transformed him and made him from a persecutor into an apostle. His whole life has been transformed, and the work and the person of the Holy Spirit is central to all of it. I think that's exactly right. For those who are reading Romans regularly, Christology is not unimportant, but that's not his central discussion in the book of Romans. It's not a systematic theology after all. One thing that's interesting in that verse that you just read is that oftentimes we can think of the parallel statements there. 
right? According to the flesh and according to the spirit of holiness. And think of that as discussing Christology about the two natures of Christ. Now, we affirm the two natures of Christ, that he's indeed truly human and truly divine, and no questions can be found regarding that. However, Paul's point is here is not about the two natures of Christ. It's about the two ages, age according to the flesh and age according to the Holy Spirit. It's redemptive historical in his description of Jesus here, that what he has in mind is that the flesh represents things that are weak and transient, this worldly, versus the spirit represents something that's permanent, eternal, powerful, and then otherworldly is what we have in mind. And what Christ happened, he's the central point of this eon change, one age to the next. Which happened in Paul's own life and existence. The Spirit made him alive, the Spirit united him to Christ, and the Spirit made him a participant in and an apostle of this new age that has been inaugurated by Christ. I think one thing that I feel like I forget, and perhaps others do as well, is that in terms of the development of redemptive history, the redemption of God in the world, in history, we are in the exact same redemptive historic age as Paul is. We've gone through a passage of 2000, two millennia, but in terms of where we are in the activity of God in saving his people. We're in the same state. And so Paul, as one of the earlier believers coming into this new age, gives us the guidance and understanding and perspective of where you and I stand in the saving activities of God. Why is it so important to distinguish between spirit with a lowercase s and spirit with an uppercase s when reading Paul? For example, I think of Romans 2.29, in which Paul says, But a Jew is one inwardly, or secretly, we could say, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Why is it so important to do as the ESV has done here in 229 to make that S in spirit a capital S rather than lowercase? This is an interesting question because it's about words that have theological significance. Just like English, the Greek word for the Holy Spirit is the same word as, let's say, the inner being or the soul of an individual. So one's human spirit. One's human spirit. And so because it's the same word, use two different ways. And then you have to also understand that in Greek, in the New Testament, it was written in caps without the distinction in letters. So it's not like it's going to sit there, distinguish for us, hey, this one is a capital one and this is a small letter one. So context is huge. The only way you can come and understand what's going on. And in particular, in places like the ones you mentioned in uh, Romans chapter 2, depending on where you land, it alters the meaning. But Paul's point there is not the discussion between like the inner spirit or the inner man versus the outer man. The contrast that Paul has in mind there is between the letter or the spirit. And here, the letter as we understand it, used fairly commonly in Paul's writing to refer to the Mosaic law. It's about the law. And here, Paul mentions to us, the letter kills right? If you believe that you can come before God through the law, then you're sorely mistaken because no one can. No one can do so perfectly as demanded. If that's the case, the law itself 
will bring you to your destruction. What can truly save is the work of the Spirit. And the work of the Spirit is not subjectively feeling good about yourself as perhaps moderns may uh, believe. This is where we are emphasizing that this Spirit is the capital Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit that revives us, regenerates us, that brings confidence and security for us as we stand before our God and King and our Judge. So when Paul says the letter kills, he's not saying, as sometimes people have thought in the past, that the literal sense of the text kills and the figurative sense of the text makes alive. Rather, he's saying that the Mosaic law, as law, has the power to kill, but the Holy Spirit has the power to give life. I think that's exactly right. I mean, there was a period where, in terms of the history of interpretation, where the thought process was, you have the literal meaning, you have the spiritual meaning, you have to follow the spiritual meaning. Literal meaning doesn't mean as much. My guess is that even if you don't apply phrases like quadriga or others, there are many who practice that. The letter of the law right? He's not going to be helpful to us. It's what you feel or subjectively understand from the text. Or what are the Goliaths in your life? That's that's right. I mean... Um, and that's allegorizing, and that's taking a figure of speech and substituting that figure or a figurative reading of the text for the actual intentional historical sense that the author means. I mean, it's a fun way. I mean, it, it, it's, it's entertaining. And it makes for interesting, exciting preaching. We love stories. I mean, absolutely no doubt about it. But no... I I don't think that's what the text is saying here in Romans 9 or for that matter, Romans 7 or 1 Corinthians elsewhere. 2 Corinthians yeah. 3, 6. The, that's right. The, the letter that Paul seems to be referring to fairly consistently has to do with the law, the law of Moses in particular. The time at which the conviction was the law played a central role right? In you being able to bring yourself before God into salvation is the thought that Paul is trying to say, that's not what it is. The work is God and God's alone. And it's the Spirit's work that revives and saves. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So far, we've focused a lot on the objective, the movement of redemptive history, the two ages. But the Apostle Paul also says in Romans 5, 5, that God's love is poured forth into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who is himself God's gift to us. So how is it important or why is it so important for us to understand that it's through the Holy Spirit that we come into possession of God's love, that it's through the Spirit's work in our hearts. Why is that so significant? Paul's points here drives us toward the element or the question of confidence before God. That is, he speaks of the fact that hope allows us not to be put to shame as we see and face, God is the point that he drives us towards. And Christians do not need to fear that their hope is not baseless or inadequate. And he's trying to give us reason why that's the case. Why is it the case that we will not be ashamed? Because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Spirit. All of us, according to Paul, those of us who've come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then are given and possess the Holy Spirit. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit, whom later on Paul describes in Romans as the spirit of adoption, who cries with our spirit that we are God's sons and daughters of God, right? 
here, this spirit gives us the confidence to stand before God, know that we are in him, that we belong to him. It's not subjective feelings of belonging that he's speaking of, nor is it simply only about the trust in the promises given. Clearly, that's the promise given. But it's the spirit that allows us to get a hold of that promise and understand that to be mine and to stand before God confident that one day as we come before God, we will not be turned away in shame, that our hope given to us by spirit is not baseless or inadequate as we come before God. So this is quite a bit important for us. I mean, I think for most individuals who are believers go through mountain highs and valley lows, depending on the circumstances that take place. We are fickle people. This is not a judgment on anyone. I'm a fickle person. I can testify to that. Okay. (laughs) You you know what? I can testify to that too for you. (laughs) There are good days. There are bad days. There are days, for lack of better phrases, there are days we feel closer to God, further away from God. But one thing that we do know is that we might forsake God or forget God, but God never forsakes us, nor forgets us. And that promise to us is secured in us by the work of the Spirit. In Institutes 311, Calvin wrote that if Christ remains outside of us, then we don't benefit from his work for us. He calls the Spirit the bond, the vine, in Latin, the winculum, the thing that connects us to the risen Christ. How does that idea help us understand Paul's theology of the Spirit and the Christian life in places like Romans 6-5 or elsewhere, for example, in uh, 7-6, where he speaks about we serving God in the new way or the newness of the Spirit, again, capitalizing the S in spirit. I think one thing we have to realize about Paul's perspective of the Spirit is what Jesus accomplishes, the Spirit makes it effectual in us, not only in terms of our standing before God, but our continued living in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, in speaking of the resurrection as such a central tenet for understanding his perspective in 1 Corinthians, he ends up saying, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit, and he ties the work of Christ with the work of the Spirit as it becomes effectual for us in our lives. And Paul seems very clear in saying that apart from the Spirit and the Spirit's continued work in us and in our heart, Christ and his life and death and resurrection are ineffectual for us apart from the Spirit. And so here, having entered into a new age by the death and resurrection of Christ as it's applied to us, we are united with Christ in his death. We are united with Christ in his resurrection, all because of the work of the Spirit. And we continue in life that we having entered into a new life, we live a new life because the empowerment as well as the presence of the Spirit. What's I think important for us to again bring back certain redemptive historical motifs here is that the motif that Paul seems very fond of is the notion that because of Jesus Christ, we are recreated in him. There are a lot of motifs that tie scripture together, but one of the ones that Paul seems to be very fond of is this notion that having been created as an earthly human being now in sin, turned away from God, dying and deteriorating, here by the work of Christ applied to us in the spirit, we have been rebirthed. We think of that as simply Johannine, where he talks about being born again, but Paul speaks of this as well, having died with Christ. 
raised with him by the work of the Spirit, by the empowering of God who raised those who are dead, we now have come into a newly created state. We are new people. We are new creation, as Paul seems to emphasize for us in multiple occasions, not the least of which is 2 Corinthians 5 and Galatians 6, to say we are now in a new world, new age, as new kingdom people, new citizens, new children, now growing once again, according to the will of God, by the working of the Spirit. The Spirit then becomes the one who empowers and teaches for us to grow and mature before Him. And as we struggle with sin then, it's helpful to also remember that, just as you say, all of this newness has been inaugurated, and yet we're not fully there yet in our earthly experience. At the same time, we have been given, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.5, among other places, a down payment of the Holy Spirit, a down payment of eternal life. And the Spirit is, he seems to be saying, that down payment. So as we begin to draw this discussion to a close, help us to understand the importance of and the encouragement in that notion of the Holy Spirit as a down down payment of eternal life. This is true of me, my family, my children in general. When we struggle with sin and when we are in moments of difficulty where the good that we want to do, we don't do, and the bad that we don't want to do, we keep on doing seems to exemplify my life in many ways. Here, Paul's teaching on this Holy Spirit reminds us of a few things. On the one hand, your standing before God does not and cannot change. This is why the Spirit is the guarantor. He's the down payment. It guarantees the full payment to come. All that to simply say that your standing before God does not and cannot change in your identity in Him is something that we need to be reminded of over and over again. And the Spirit, by His Word, reminds us of our identity in a regular basis. Moments of sin is where we need to be in the Word even more. Moments of sin is when we need to hear the Word proclaimed to us even more because it reminds us by the Spirit that we before God, no longer stand as sinners and condemned, but because of the work of Christ Jesus our Lord, we stand as his sons and daughters, forever justified and accepted as his son and daughter. The second thing we need to remember in that state is that Paul consistently teaches not by saying, you need to do better, improve, so that God will love you more as a result of that work. No, he always seems to say, this is who you are. You need to live out who you are. That is to say, when you struggle with something, Paul's thing is, hey, Scott, do this better, which is how sometimes I talk to my children, unfortunately. Then I will love you, which brings a condition. That's right? sometimes how you talk to me. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> sometimes that's what's necessary. But that's not what Paul seems to say. He comes to us and says, do you know that you are a child of God? And the last thing I would mention is simply that the Spirit, according to Paul, is the one who comes to your aid, not only as your advocate and comfort. One of the, my favorite images of the Spirit in Paul is where the Spirit comes and he speaks on your behalf, even as you pray, groanings that you cannot fully express or comprehend for that matter. He is the one who intercedes for us. I realize that the intercession is also applied to Jesus as well. And this is where the Trinitarian formula works out exactly right. Here, where he is able to speak on your behalf, 
to read the thoughts of your mind and to express them as we come before God. So for those of us who daily struggle with our sin, the reminder from Paul is that we are secure in God and our identity cannot change. The Spirit is the one who reminds us of our identity in order that we may work out our salvation from the standpoint of recognizing who we are, determining what we should do. And that he's the one who prays alongside with us, helping us to know what we ought to pray for, even when we don't. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.